Good morning, Evergreen. It's good to see everyone. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, and we're finishing up the last chapter, or chapter 4. We're reading the last seven verses, starting in verse 35. And this is a pretty typical passage. Probably you're very familiar with it. Jesus calming the storm. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've heard a time or two that the point of this text is that Jesus is able to calm the storms of your life. Storms being kind of an allegory for any trial or pain that you go through. And let me just go ahead and say that is very true. Jesus is able to calm the storms of your life. But that's not what the point of our passage is, because then we probably could just say, yep, Jesus is able to calm the storms of our life, and the sermon's over. We don't have anything more work to do. But Mark is concerned with something else. Mark, at the very beginning of his gospel, said that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he's driving us always throughout the gospel to look at Jesus and ask ourselves, who is this man? Who is this man that we're called to follow, to entrust our lives to? A man who was crucified? Let's read. This is Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took them, took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was, speaking about Jesus, in the stern, in the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's go to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, as you call us into worship, call you to listen, call us to listen to your words Lord, we know that without your Holy Spirit, we are not able. That we need your Holy Spirit to draw us to you. We need your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts so that we may praise your holy name. And we even need your Holy Spirit to understand this text before us. And I pray that you would do that. And that your Holy Spirit would lift up the name of Jesus so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
I don't know what the uh, first thing that you guys notice upon reading the sto- this story of Jesus calming the storm. But the first thing I noticed was that there's three times that the word great appeared. Even in the ESV, there's a great windstorm, there's a great calm, and there's a great fear. And that word there, great, is mega. And isn't it interesting that it's after the mega storm that it makes sense that Jesus would cause a mega calm. But the interesting thing is, is that the disciples, while they were in a very scary situation before in the midst of the storm, the mega fear actually occurred after the storm. As they wrestled with this question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And right here we get to, and I being a little cutesy here with some of my words, the, the title of this sermon being the mega misunderstanding, but it just seemed to work on too many fronts not to use it. Because not only do we typically read this passage and immediately jump to, as we should, seek to say, how does this apply to my life? We typically misunderstand this text to not looking to say, what does this teach us about who the Lord Jesus Christ is? But also, the disciples have a mega misunderstanding. They've been with Jesus. We just read that they were given the secret of the kingdom of God. They were taught by Jesus himself. And you'd think that if anyone would understand who Jesus is, it would be them. People who are raised up in the church, maybe, who are around the teaching of God's word, you'd think them, of all people, would know who Jesus is. But that doesn't happen. There are times where, unfortunately, where people hear the word of God read to them, they read the stories of this, and the only thing that they can do if they can get to any point is to say, well, how can I make this practical for me and how I live my life? They might get that far, but they don't go to the lengths of saying the true The true nature of the Christian life is, who am I following? Who have I entrusted my life to and dedicated my life to his service to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? That's the question that we need to be thinking about. And I think that makes sense because when we get to the disciples' faith in this very first point, and by the way, we have the outline for the sermon at the end, So if you just flip over, you'll see the outline and actually even have a fill-in-the-blank notes. So you can tell me how that works or if that's also too cutesy like the title. But the first thing that we see is that the Megazus storm displays the disciples' faith. That the mega storm displays the disciples' faith. And the reason why it displays the disciples' faith is because when we look at this text and see his awesome power, that is the thing that's shocking to them. And the reason why is because they had no problem getting a grasp on the fact that the man they were dealing with was a human being. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And when we start this text, verse 35, on that day when evening had come, that the context of this whole story 
is the fact that Jesus had been teaching all day long. He had been teaching in parables, and he, the crowd was so large and so massive that in order for his own safety from the threat of the crowds pressing in on him, he had gotten into a boat and taught them from the shore. And he was using probably one of the disciples' boats because four of, at least four of his disciples were fishermen. And they had their boats, they gathered, and he had been teaching all day long. And when evening had come, at the very end of the day, he says, he commands his disciples saying, we are going to take our boats to the other side of the sea. In the Lake of Galilee, it's a, it's a large lake, but I grew up in Michigan where there was the Great Lakes. So it doesn't seem too, too large to me, but it was a 13-mile long lake of fresh water and then a seven-mile journey across. So they're thinking about a seven-mile journey, but they're starting it in the evening. So by the time they, we see the storm and actually strikes, they're in the middle of the night. And also, if, when we're reading this, if we are seeking to apply this to our lives devotionally and saying Jesus is able to calm the storms of our lives, something that might be a little disconcerting is that Jesus actually commanded them to go to the other side. That what actually got them into the storm that they found themselves in, a literal storm, a windstorm, was Jesus telling them something and them being obedient, them listening and doing exactly what they're told. And that's what actually caused the situation. And now I will take a step back here and say that when we have different trials, I don't have a problem using storms to reference different trials in life that we go to, the chaos that is that we find ourselves in. We know that some of those storms are caused by ourselves. And actually, really, the majority of the problems that we find ourselves in and the chaos that we deal with is a problem of our own, crea our own creation. But that's not always the case. The disciples here entered into trouble because they were listening to Jesus. And they found themselves in the middle of the sea at night. And leaving the crowd, they took him, as in Jesus, this is verse 36, if you look down, with him in the boat, just as he was in the other boats who were with him. Now, Jesus here, he has commanded his disciples to go across, but it doesn't look like Jesus had really any break of any sort. He was standing in the boat, and he commanded his disciples, just as he was, hey, let's take the boats, go to the other side of the sea. He had been teaching all day long. What break did he have at this, this entire time? Well, we see that Jesus' plan later on was his plan was to get a nap during this process. He had been working all day long. It was the job of his disciples to get them across the sea. And we'll see that it's going to be for a very specific purpose to encounter a demon-possessed man. But before we even get there, he's saying, I'm just going to take a nap. And this is really the only time that we read of Jesus sleeping. Isn't that odd? But I, I can tell you, I can promise you this. If Jesus was a normal human being, which he was, he slept often. He was tired. And it's in the midst of this great windstorm when the sea is breaking over. You have the large waves that are breaking into the boat and it's filling up. 
and he's so tired that he's sleeping through it all, getting wet, all the rain. And you might think, well, why is this? Is it that Jesus is so at peace with himself that he is able to sleep through this? Well, I I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but I have. I have gotten home late at night, and I've just kind of discovered throughout college that at a certain point, it's better for me just to stay up the entire night if I'm going to try to wake up on time. Because if I get less than two hours of sleep, nothing is going to wake me up. And I actually remember my parents waking me up or at least accusing me the next morning of not really caring about a situation when uh, I was asleep in my room and every alarm in our house went off because there's a water main break in the house and it flooded and caused every alarm just to siren off. And I slept through it all and woke up the next morning and my mom asked me the same sort of question. Did you not care what was going on? Did you just not, you know, you didn't want to be disturbed? The answer was no. I was just simply tired. You see, when this, the reason why Mark needs to go through this text and show us this experience that the disciples had is because if you were looking at the human Jesus, seeing him as a teacher, you would have never seen Jesus's divine nature. It was not something that you just would look at him and say, oh, yes, he's the God, man. He's different. Actually, Isaiah tells us is that by the looks of him, there was nothing different about him, nothing appealing and attractive to, about his human physical appearance that would draw you to go and follow him. That's not to say that the disciples should not have come to the conclusion that he is the God man. For just in the previous couple chapters, we saw the very first time in Mark chapter 2 that Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive sins, a prerogative that belongs to God and God alone. And he said, to show that I have this power, he healed a quadriplegic. So the disciples should have this, and that's why he asked them eventually the question in verse 40, have you still no faith. That's why this story is necessary. And we see here, lastly, the last thing to note is that when this mega storm arises in verse 37, that word there, just to get a picture, we already know it's in the middle of the night, which is scary enough. But a windstorm, it's lilaps, that's their word for a hurricane. It's a great windstorm that's coming. And this is not just a hurricane force winds. This is a mega hurricane that they're enduring. And that's one thing. It's another one thing to deal with it on dry land. It's another thing to deal with it in the middle of the ocean or here in the middle of a lake. And like I said, I lived on the Great Lakes and I've seen some massive what massive waves generated on a lake. And at this point, some might uh, try to show their great knowledge of the Sea of Galilee, but I'll just go ahead and let you know that any information that I know about the Sea of Galilee is because I Googled it. I did, do not have personal experience of it, but what is said about it is that it's actually the lowest lying lake, freshwater lake in the world, that it's somewhere along 600 feet below sea level and or 600 
I believe 600 feet below sea level. You can Google and check me on that. That's not really the main point of this. But some would say that Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is prone to sudden violent storms because it's sitting kind of in a bowl and it's surrounded by high mountains, which does create storms, sudden storms happening that even today that they have to constantly evacuate from the shore to get away from the waves, the sudden storms. But I looked, when I, at least in my study, I haven't seen a great violent storm on the Sea of Galilee that was able to capsize a boat since 1992, or at least that was the last recorded time. So while this is something typical, the disciples would have went out and they probably knew that there was danger in going out at night in case of a sudden storm happening. This is a very unusual storm. This is a mega hurricane type winds. So mega that at the very incept of, or the inception of this storm, the waves are already breaking into the boat, filling up. There's a sense of urgency here. And I have never been, I've never been on a, in a, in a boat during a storm, but I've grown up being afraid of tornadoes, probably because the 90s movie Twister. But seeing great winds and sitting outside, being able to look outside and seeing trees that are half bent over, that's a terrifying thing to go through. And the disciples here, where it leads them, where we actually see their faith on display is in verse 38. When they woke him up and they said, teacher, do you not care that we are dying? See, that's what this has caused. And I don't think it, in the middle of a windstorm when you're completely out of control and you're completely at the mercy of a torrential downpour and your life is threatened, I can completely understand that question. But if we're honest with ourselves, it doesn't take a windstorm and the threat of dying for us to come under the conviction that Jesus does not care about us. We have different trials when we have unrepentant children that we pray for, that we want to see them come to the Lord. And we ask ourselves, Jesus, do you not care? See, one of the problems I have in looking at this and trying to just jump immediately to the application of Jesus is able to calm the storms in our life is that if we, ref if we just only take that away from this, we're going to ask ourselves the same question. Because unlike the disciples, we don't have Jesus in our boat. When we encounter storms, the possibility of dying is real. That when we have a cancer, it's not necessarily the case that we are going to be saved from that. Cancer could take our life. What the disciples need is the same thing that we need, is we need a clear view of who Jesus is, a clear understanding and apprehension of it, so that we don't ask this same question. Does Jesus not care about us? In the midst of different storms that are threatening our lives or threatening to do us harm, 
And while it's understandable, Jesus is going to rebuke them as he displays the mega calm that he shows them, that he performs, displays divine power. And one note of something that John MacArthur said that stuck out to me was that he said that the situation has to be pretty bad for a group of sailors to reach out to a carpenter to help them with this storm. And they do reach out to him because they know that you, you'd have to be thinking what they're, what's going through their minds. Why are they reaching out to Jesus? And then why are they going to be surprised? Well, we just read in Jonah that Jonah was a prophet who knew exactly how to calm that storm. And even Paul, when he was on the boat in Acts 27, he was comforting the sailors around him after they had been weeks out on the ocean and the bo their boat had just totally been wrecked. He said, don't worry. God is going to make sure that we all make it to dry land. But notice in both of those situations, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, they don't have prophets even, don't have the power to calm the winds and the waves. Look at what he says in verse 39. So he awakes, he rebuked the wind and the sea, saying, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a mega calm. Jesus here does something that only God can do, and that's clear throughout the Old Testament. Read in your spare time Psalm 107, verses 23 through 28 where God paints the picture that he's going to send, he can send a storm and he can cease the storm. Psalm 104 displays that the same power is found in God and God alone. That the wind and the seas are often used symbolically in the Old Testament to show and cover the range of nature and natural disasters. That God is the one, as we saw in Jonah, who sent a great wind to cause that storm. And also he is the only one who can cause it to subside, something even pagan sailors recognized in Jonah. So God, Jesus here speaks to them, and he says, notice he, when he calms and he causes this mega calm, he did not pray. He did not invoke his heavenly father, which he could have done, and he does in other cases, to perform this miracle. He doesn't mutter some kind of incantation. He does not do anything else than simply speak to inanimate objects, and they listen. And Jesus' command is peace, or really be quiet, and be still. Or in the Greek there, the word is actually to muzzle. If you muzzle someone or muzzle a dog, they stop barking. That's the idea here. Jesus commands, he rebukes it, and tells it to quit its noise. And if you were the disciples before, you probably wouldn't have said, hey, teacher, you know, get up. Uh, I don't, do you not care that this storm is threatening our lives? No, the boat is rocking in the winds. Water is coming into the boat. The winds are howling. And they're yelling at the top of their lungs, teacher, do you not care we're perishing? And when we look at the other gospel accounts, we see that 
everyone's kind of in a state of panic, that there's multiple lines of what they're yelling at Jesus to get him to wake up. And Jesus commands the storm to be quiet. And all of a sudden, the sea is like glass. And you could hear a whisper when Jesus then rebukes his disciples. You know, we've had different discussions in branch group, and Michael Bowling has brought up that there are some people who look at the miracles in the Bible and try to explain every miracle in some sort of naturalistic way to explain how it happened, whether the Red Sea is for some reason a couple inches deep or the the sun standing still was just a matter of their misapprehension of what's the science and what's going on. You know, there's some cases in the Bible where that's true. God could have sent an earthquake at the right moment to cause the walls of Jericho to fall. Sure. But that cannot be done in every situation. And nor is that really the right approach when we look at the miracles of the Bible. We know that God can cause all things to happen according to his will, and he can choose to use natural means, or he can choose to use supernatural means. And here in our text, we have something unavoidably, probably not the right word to use there, but unavoidably supernatural. You can't really come to a different conclusion because the laws of physics would have to be suspended. Sure, we this wind stops, but how long would it take before the waves would die down? The energy would have to just be automatically dissipated. And not only that, but if you think about this miracle, he's speaking to winds and waves, inanimate objects that don't have ears. What is he expecting them to do? Is Jesus commanding them and they say, oh, okay, I got it, and then they listen? No. We're told in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 16, listen to what Paul says. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. He's talking about Jesus, and he says that he's delivered us over from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, his beloved son, talking about the father, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of of God, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Look how Paul seamlessly goes and talking about the Father placing us in the Son that the son accomplished redemption for his people, and he just seamlessly trans—he seamlessly translates. He goes into looking at how Jesus was the creator of all things, and if it causes you any trouble that he calls him the firstborn of all creation, that word is not meant in any sense. Whether it's used in the Old Testament, this use, this word is not a super common word, but it is used throughout. The Old Testament translation, when it's translated into Greek and also in the New, firstborn does not necessarily refer to first in order, but it's first in priority. When you're calling someone the firstborn, you're saying that he has the highest authority. And that's the sense that's being communicated here. 
And maybe the ESV could have chosen a better word than firstborn to avoid that. But that's to say that the reason why the wind and the storms obey him at his voice is because he is the creator of all things. Think about how the universe was created. In six days, the universe was created by the word of his power. God spoke a command, let there be light, and there was light. That's how Jesus performed this miracle. He performed it by the word of his power. And what this ends up displaying to us is unmistakably that Jesus is God. And at this point, we are probably going to get about as much a handle on this as the disciples had on it in this moment. How is Jesus a 100% man, a normal human being who needs to eat and needs to sleep, and yet is the God of all creation? That's the dynamic that what we're revealed about who Jesus is. And we know it's true because of demonstrations like this throughout the scriptures. But it's hard for any human being to really wrap their minds around. And it's understandable, it's completely explainable that this mega calm, that we're not drawing some false conclusion here, that it's a display of divine power. That's the second blank. Should probably do that from time to time. The mega calm displays the divine power. That's unmistakable because of the disciples' reaction. Starting in verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? What's going on in the disciples' mind? Well, they were filled with a great fear. This is the mega fear that the disciples had, not during the storm, but when they actually got just a glimpse of Jesus' divine power as the Son of God. They had a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Peter already had some glimpses of Jesus' divine power personally when he was called and John tells us that he was fishing all night and he wasn't able to get any fish and Jesus said, hey, cast it on the other side. And you'd think that Peter would know how to do that, all right? He's tried that a lot, but he, can, he, he obeys him and all of a sudden he has a great mound of fish. And Jesus' first interaction, Peter's first re- interaction with Jesus was to bow down and say, Go, depart from me for I am a sinner. You see, there's a common occurrence throughout Scripture that when human beings encounter God and have a sense that they're in divine, the presence of the divine, great fear overwhelms them. If you want to understand a little bit why, take some time reading Isaiah chapter 6. When he sees the heavenly angels worshiping God and God is sitting on his throne And Isaiah can do nothing but to fall on his face. Think about Mount Sinai, when the people hear the Ten Commandments pounded to them from the midst of a cloud and thunder and lightning and fire. The people say, please, Moses, you keep doing what you're doing, interceding for us. We don't want to die. And this is true even in Jesus in his glorified state. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, 
when God, when John turns around and sees Jesus and he sees him in his glorified state, John falls to the ground, it says, like a dead man. See, it's the disciples' reaction that they have a mega fear that displays an appropriate understanding of divinity. And I say appropriate there because if Jesus was to walk into the room, most people, it seems like the way that we oftentimes are praying to Jesus, it would seem that we would have run up to him, give him a high five, give him a hug and say, yo, hey, my brother from another mother and treat him like any other guy. But that's to misunderstand who Jesus is. See, we don't need to fear Jesus because we're, he does not care, for he does care. And he shows his disciple that he does care about them. But a true understanding about Jesus' divine nature, that he is the God over all universe, who has the power to speak things that were not existent previously into existence, that should fill us with a sense of divine reverence. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that we are to worship our God in a spirit of reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is an all-consuming fire. That's how we should see Jesus. An appropriate response to actually understanding and grasping that Jesus is God and man is not to figure out all the different theological details of exactly how does that work. A true grasp of it is to follow Jesus, to submit to his lordship, to follow him and be afraid, not because we think he doesn't care, but because we know he's the God of the universe. That's why Isaiah chapter 8 verse 13 tells us to fear God and him alone. The fact that they feared divine, Jesus really is the true demonstration after this divine power being witnessed that Jesus really is the God-man. And it's after doing this work of going through the text, seeing what it says about Jesus, and this is true for all of your Bible reading, by the way, reading the Bible first, once we understand who God is, then we're ready to apply it. Once we read our Bible and say, what does this tell me about Jesus? What does this tell me about who God is? It's at that point that we're able to see how it applies to us. And I think it applies to us in kind of two ways, but they're similarly related. If we have a proper understanding of who Jesus is, we'll understand that it's a broader picture than just that Jesus is able to heal us or he's able to bring us through different storms. And we can see that by where the disciples' faith is lacking because, you know, we all kind of suffer from the same syndrome that the disciples are suffering from. We might have a mental grasp that Jesus is God and that he's man and he's able to save us. But the reason why we're constantly doubting his care and concern for us is because when we're actually in the midst of the chaos of life, it's hard to see those things. It's hard to get a grasp on it practically, really. And we find ourselves constantly relearning this lesson over and over again. Well, what would it look like then? What would it have looked like for the disciples to have had faith? 
Well, they still would have probably in the midst of the storm still would have woken up Jesus for help. They would have still went to him asking, hey, we know you're able, help us, whatever that means. But we wouldn't ask, do you not care? And in verse 40, we get Jesus's insight into their situation because it says, he said to them, why are you so afraid? That word there is not the same word for fear that they've been fearing this entire time. Jesus calls them, why are they so cowardly? Do you still have no faith? Why does Jesus call them a coward? Because if they had been with Jesus all this time and not known who he is, if they knew who Jesus was, they would not be as fearful as they were. I think a really a good point of contact for us, if we're going to just jump into a point of application, would be to look at Daniel chapter 3. What's happening in Daniel chapter 3? That's the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They, Nebuchadnezzar had created a big, massive golden idol that they're to bow down to. And he calls them up and says, hey, have you not been worshiping my image? And this is what they responded to him with. They said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see what they just demonstrated there? They confess that, yes, God is able to save us through any situation we are in. There's no questioning of God's goodness that God would maybe for some reason not do that. But what he wants them to know, what he wants the king to know, is that if God decides not to do that, they're not going to worship him. They're committed to worshiping God. You see, when we encounter different storms in our lives, that serves as an opportunity for our faith to be demonstrated. Our faith in God, a demonstration of boldness and confidence, not that God is going to save us out of every particular problem that we'll find ourselves in, or even the ones that threaten our life, but a boldness and confidence to serve him, trusting in his character, knowing that he is able, and if God has for some reason the desire or the plan to go through some trial, he has a reason for it. Jesus had sent the disciples into a storm to teach them, to show them who he was. And it's amazing how even in the midst of pain and trial and even in the midst of devastation that can happen, it's amazing how God still does this today. He still is revealing to us that he is worthy of our faith and trust. And God is worthy of our faith and trust in him, not primarily because he does exactly as he, we think he should do in every situation, but because he is good in and of himself. And the question is, is whether we can trust him. Has the Bible given us ample information to know that yes, he's sovereign, yes, he is all powerful, but he also cares for us. You know, when we're going through a trial where we can look to, to know if he actually does care for us, 
is that he accomplished our redemption. No matter what happens in life, God can, is able to save us out of different trials. But if you want to know for sure that God cares for you when different trials come into your life, know that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for you to save all those who put their faith and trust in him. That the guilt has been cleared. The payment has been made. That we are now made not only friends of God, but children of God. And God will not allow one hair to fall from our heads that was not part of his intended purposes and plan. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for being our God and our King. Thank you for being our Savior. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we have all the head knowledge, but we demonstrate cowardice. We fear what other people will think of us, and that keeps us from sharing your good news with people. We constantly are led, just like the disciples, to question whether or not the Lord Jesus Christ cares for us because our circumstances do not speak to your goodness. But Lord, may you help us to not look at just the horror of the different hardships that we're going through, but that you would lift our eyes away from those to look at the character of God. Lord, knowing that we shall fear no evil for if whatever evil that we're going through, you are with us. We might not have Jesus in the boat that ensures our physical safety to make it to the other side. But we know that Psalm 23 tells us that in the valley of the shadow of death, that we will fear no evil for you or God are with us. May we trust in your character. May we boldly face even the possibility of death, knowing that you do care for us. Lord, help our hearts to trust in you no matter what circumstances might come our way. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.